Genesis 19 is where we are tonight. Sodom and Gomorrah. How do you talk about Sodom and Gomorrah? I guess you just do. If you have a bead on Genesis 19, I invite you to keep your finger there and turn over to Luke chapter 17. That's where I'd like to begin. Let's right out of the gate understand what is the immediate relevance of cities destroyed 4,000 years ago. And what does that really have to do with us here and now at this time? And Jesus explains that. So let's start with that. Luke chapter 17, verse 22. Luke 17, 22. You there? And he said to the disciples... The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Is anybody there? <laughs> Anyone longing to see the days, or even just one day? Lord Jesus, could we just have one day with the Son of Man? And he told the disciples, you're going to long for that. Here we are 2,000 years later, and the longing, I believe, is intense. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. He's coming suddenly. When he comes, it's going to be fast, lightning fast. But, Jesus says, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of, son of, of the Son of Man. And, you know, we looked at that, Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, Talking about they were eating, verse 27, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and until the flood came and destroyed them all. And then he says it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Pause right there and recognize, even before we get to Genesis 19, that wasn't all they were doing in Sodom. Interesting the way Jesus puts it. What seems like common, average, everyday life on the surface, buying, selling, eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, underneath the surface, or actually very near the surface in Sodom, was a kind of sexual immorality that you probably couldn't have imagined until today. Goes on and says, on that day, the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and the one whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife? Jesus says, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. So we now know exactly what the problem was with Lot's wife. She sought to keep her life. She didn't want to lose what she had, so she looked back to it. Jesus says, I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, that is, received unto. The word is paralambano in the Greek, one of my favorite words. 
received, as in received unto the Lord, and the other will be left. Two men, verse 36, will be in the field. One will be received unto the Lord. The other one will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. And there's a lot of prophecy there. Where the body is, where the, body is the vultures will be gathered. Speaking of corpses strewn across Armageddon, and God calling for what's called the Great Supper of God, which is basically a feast for the vultures. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 19. The point is, Jesus is talking about when he comes, it will be like in the days of Lot. Things going on. Surfacy, everyday things. Dark, underneath things. And the issue is, will you be among those who escape? Will you escape? You see, the story of Lot is the story of escape. Turn on back to Genesis chapter 19. The story of escape. A man, his wife, his daughters, in this God-forbidding city, this horrible place, as you'll see, and the Lord offers them escape. Genesis 19, verse 1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The two angels, the Malachim. So now we know two angels, two messengers of God are sent on down to Sodom. Remember back on Sunday we were talking about this. Abraham was having a conversation with God. Originally at the beginning of chapter 18, three men came. One we realized was Yahweh, and the other are now these two angels. Yahweh stays in conversation with Abraham for a bit, the two angels proceed on to Sodom and they come to Sodom in the evening and Lot is sitting in the gate, the city gate. We would say the courthouse. We might say the, the county seat. What is Lot doing in the county seat, the, the seat of the judges of a city? It was the city gate. And there are a few reasons why Lot might be sitting in the city gate. One would be he's a missionary. He's there to save Sodom. So perhaps that's why he was in the gate. Another reason would be he's a mercenary. He's there at Sodom to line his own pockets. That's probably closer to the truth. I doubt he was functioning as a missionary, possibly as a mercenary, but most likely Lot had secured his own position as a magistrate. That is, he was sitting among the judges of Sodom, ruling as an elder on the city council or court. When you see someone sitting in the gate in Scripture, we're not talking about like this, this big archway. We're talking about the entrance to the city. And as you came into the city, that's where court decisions were held. That's where the elders met. That's where people went to get decisions rendered and answered. And that's where Lot is not, he's not just at the city gate, he is seated, he's sitting in the city gate, and that's where, again, the elders would sit to make rulings. But you may recall Lot didn't take his seat there overnight. Back in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord. So the first thing Lot did was he saw it. And then Genesis 13, 11, Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And then verse 12, Lot settled in the cities of the valley 
and finally moved his tents as far as Sodom. So he saw, he chose, he settled, he moved near, and now he's seated in the city gate. This has been a progression for Lot. Genesis 13, verse 13 tells us even when Lot first arrived there, that this particular city was filled with wicked men. The men of Sodom, Genesis 13, 13, were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And that's when Lot moved there. It's not after he got there that suddenly, you know, things just went bad. No, it already was filled with an exceedingly, the Bible tells us, wicked populace. So consider Lot's decision-making here. He saw it. He chose it. He settled near it, and now he's seated in it. And it sounds an awful lot like, well, the first psalm, which says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Let that be a warning to any of us where sin is concerned, that it always starts with, well, interest. A curiosity. And then we begin to walk. Then we pause and we stand until finally, like Lot in the city gate, we sit down and the next thing we know, we are seated in sin. The psalm is very interesting to me. It's almost a parallel to Sodom and Gomorrah and and Lot moving there to what he saw as a beautiful, well-watered valley. He thought this is the place to live. You know what the psalm goes on and says? The one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. There's your well-watered land. Sodom was a ruse. Oh, on the outside and and externally, yeah, it looked well-watered, but inside it was corrupt and ruinous. The wicked are not so, that is, they are not like trees planted by streams of water. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. No substance, no rootedness. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, as evidenced early on by Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, when Lot first saw Sodom, Back in Genesis 13, it was a well-watered valley. So Lot settled for Sodom. And whatever reason, he's now seated in the scoffer's gate (laughs) when the angels arrived there. It says, when Lot saw, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house. And spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. This is Middle Eastern hospitality, and yet there is a large dose of urgency here. No, 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 you don't want to stay in the city square. See, typically, if you're traveling in the Middle East of those days, you would. You could just camp out in the center of the city and have some degree of protection from the city around you as opposed to being on the outskirts or out in the fields. And so you could just camp out there. Lot strongly urges them not to. He knows what's going on. He knew where he lived. But did you notice what he served? 
unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Well, that's interesting. That's kind of a Bible thing, isn't it? Is that a coincidence that it's there? I mean, it's not yet the ordained feast of the law, right? That comes along in, in Exodus chapter 12, where God says you're to keep this, this feast of unleavened bread. No, that hasn't happened yet, but in the Bible, and God is consistent from Genesis through Revelation, in the Bible, leaven always epitomizes sin and corruption, always. So if you see unleavened bread, understand that's what's being implied. That's what's being referred to. And we see this here. Sodom was leavened to the core. Sodom was, was sin sick throughout. And so that alone to me makes this very interesting that the very first mention, and this is it, the first mention of unleavened bread in the Bible is right here. And it is obviously intentional. Why? Because of the parallel. And I'll just read it to you over in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. God says, now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. And whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your, your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. The feast of unleavened bread. Now, if you're gonna have a feast, I can think of a lot of things more feast-worthy than unleavened bread. But for seven days, God says, once a year, you're gonna eat this. You're gonna focus on this. It's called Chag Hamatzot in the Hebrew. And here's the parallel. Chag Hamatzot, Feast of Unleavened Bread, was first eaten in Egypt the night before the children of Israel were delivered. The first mention of unleavened bread we see it first eaten in Sodom the night before Lot is going to be delivered. Interesting. As if the Lord is saying, I want the, the leaven out of there. Get rid of your leaven and I will deliver you. Eat only the unleavened bread, only that which is pure, that which is holy, that which is true. I'm going to deliver you. Get rid of the leaven. You might also notice in Genesis 19, who baked the unleavened bread? It was Lot and not his wife. Later, she'll provide salt. <laughs> you know, I actually thought about that this week and thought, should I make a joke about that? <laughs> What this tells us, though, is that she didn't personally approve of the two men coming to stay in the home. She's not the one providing the hospitality. Lot is. I have a sense that she doesn't want to welcome these strangers into her home. She's not a lot, but she's her wife, his <laughs> wife. Something else to note. So Lot bakes unleavened bread, first time in Scripture, the night before his deliverance. But also note this, and I find it fascinating, and they ate. And they ate. Angels eat. Cool. Angels eat. 
And you might say, well, no, duh, Rick. Yahweh and the angels ate at Abraham's tent at the beginning of Genesis 18. Of course, angels eat. Stop and think about what you just said. Not only do angels eat, but God eats solid food, which is interesting because Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now you might say, okay, yeah, but Rick, you've been telling us all along that yes, this is God, yes, it's Yahweh, but actually it's Jesus, it's God in flesh. So of course he's in flesh so he can eat. Yes, I know I've been saying that. That's because spirit became flesh. So don't be casual with that. The word God, the word of God, the word who is God, the word who was God, who was with God in the beginning, John chapter one, verse one, he became flesh. Spirit became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's my point with angels eating, even with Yahweh eating, is apparently the line is more difficult to cross from physical to spiritual than it is from spiritual to physical. That is apparently not a big deal for an angel to be able to take human form and sit down and have a meal. I think probably more difficult than any one of us tonight to immediately become spirit beings and move about in the spirit. And yet, and yet, God provides passage both ways. It's absolutely doable for the angelic, for God himself, the divine, to put on flesh and do physical, fleshly things. But we have this sense that it's very difficult for us to do spiritual things. Oh, I don't know, like walking through a closed door. I don't care how spiritual you are, give it a try and see what happens. Or walking on water. Give that a shot sometime. We see Jesus do some remarkable things and we go, oh, okay, but that's Jesus and he's spiritual, right? And he's also flesh. How does this work? We think, well, we can't do spiritual things. And so then we think, well, then the spiritual likewise can't do physical things. I just want to make this clear, that the spiritual realm is not less real. It is more real than the physical realm. That the reality that we are going to is the spiritual, that we are called to become is more spiritual, not less spiritual. We're not called to become more physical, more solid, although that's what our gems teach. Be more solid, beef up, get muscle. You want more mass, more muscle mass. See, I'm working on the other kind of mass that's, I guess, not healthy. <laughs> you want to be more physical, and the Lord says, no, you want to be more spiritual. Why would he say that? Because spiritual living is real living. Because the more spiritual we are, the more like God we are. Not that we'll ever be little gods, but the more godly we become as we become more spiritual in our lives, in our thinking, in our behavior. Don't think of the line being this solid, difficult thing to move from physical into spiritual because God's calling us there. And he has shown us that if you got a choice between being spiritual or being physical, spiritual's the way to go because you can be godly and still have a burger. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 42. 
says that the resurrection of the dead is sown a physical body, but it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And so what we see throughout the teachings of Jesus and the apostles is man pursue the spiritual. Because that, my friends, that's real life. That is more reality than any of this flesh stuff that we got, get caught up in. Because for the spiritual to do natural things is not a problem. Now, for the natural to do spiritual things, there's only one thing that has to happen. You know what that is? It's got to be a death. There must be a death. If you are the natural man, the natural woman, and you want to become spiritual, there must be a death. First, we call it the death to self. We die to self, we're born again, and we begin to enter into this whole new way of thinking, this whole new way of being, this whole new reality, which is we become focused as spiritual beings. We die to self. And then with, with some exceptions, ultimately we die to this world. And the physical no longer matters. And we are raised spiritual. Of course, the exceptions are those who are raptured. Enoch, Elijah, the church. Well, just was thinking about the fact that angels ate, and it took me all the way down that rabbit trail. Verse 4. <laughs> before they lay down, that's before they went to sleep, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house. Note this, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, all. Every. The evil of Sodom is citywide. It's pervasive. What we could say is it's leavened throughout. Verse five. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came with you tonight? or to you tonight, bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and he shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. My brothers? How close are you, Lot? What is, what is this relationship? They call out, send the men who came to you tonight. Send them out. We want to have relations with them. And they're not talking a cup of joe and small talk. This is, this is very twisted. Have relations in the Hebrew is nediah. Nediah, which literally means we want to have carnal knowledge with your visitors. All the men of every quarter throughout the city we have kind of an ugly two-word phrase for that. We would call that gang rape. That's what they wanted. Obviously, they didn't know these guys were angels, but they are so sin-sick, so sin-saturated, all they want to do is take these guys and have carnal knowledge with them. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 describes it as the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Jude, verse 7, says Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. The phrase strange flesh in the Greek means going after something that you were not created to go after. Men going after men, women going after women, strange flesh. 
And he said they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That's Jude in the New Testament describing what we get in this example from the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Now, if you stop there, you think, well, okay, how bad is that? Really, it's not great, but how bad is it? Hey, remember we talked about this on Sunday, that where the heart is not right with God, the hands will not be just. And the reason that Ezekiel prophesies that they did not help the poor and needy was prior to that, there was arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. They were free from all want. Everything was great. It was easy going, and they were proud of it. A prideful people who then stopped caring for those who were in need because when the heart is not right with God, the hands will not reach out to help. But then verse 50 of Ezekiel 16 continues, thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, God says, I removed them when I saw. So the progression that Ezekiel tells us is arrogance, pleasure, insensitivity, pride, abominations. Homosexuality is one of the few sins in the Bible that is listed not just only by its sin or as a sin, iniquity, or transgression. It's listed as an abomination. These are not my words. This is God's word. So if you would disagree with me, that's fine. Disagree with me, but you gotta take it up with God. He calls it an abomination. The word is tobeah, and it means wickedness, but it's, incre- it's gross wickedness. We like to say all sin is the same. No one sin is worse than the other. Well, it's true that all sin is sin before God, that any sin is bad enough before God to render a verdict of hell for all eternity. The smallest of sin, granted, because God is perfect. But that doesn't mean there are not different distinctions among sins. And this is among, as far as God is concerned, the absolute worst. He calls it an abomination. And they're not just one of the problems of Sodom and Gomorrah. Note this, they are the end result of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin builds and reaches that level. When a country, when a society reaches that level of broad acceptance of sin, we're in trouble. Bible is clear. While All sin is unacceptable. There are some which are detestable to God and any kind of sexual distortions top the list because you wouldn't go there unless there was all kinds of stuff lining up to get you there, beginning, by the way, with things like arrogance, pride, and a lack of care for other people. My dad used to call this kind of thing a slippery slope. He was right on. American culture has become so at ease with sexual distortions of all kinds that our kids are growing up with a lie. I look at our teens. I look at my kids at home. I think about the world that they're growing up in and the constant barrage of it's fine, it's okay, it's no big deal. Express yourself, whatever you wanna be, whatever you think you are, it doesn't matter. It's however you feel and that's what culture is pounding them with. It is constant. It's nonstop. 
Whether you're watching TV or in school or on YouTube or some kind of other app, you are getting, it's this just barrage of over and over and over that it's fine, it's no big deal. And we've got Christian kids growing up with what we used to, we used to have a word for this, we used to call it sodomy, which people immediately understood was like the sin of Sodom, which in God's eyes is an abomination, it's detestable. Hey, listen, this is how God feels about it. Regardless of how you think you feel or I think I may feel, one way or the other, here's what God says, Leviticus 18, 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Now, I don't know how much more clear he could be, but he says again in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed, God says, a detestable act they shall surely be put to death. Now that's under Mosaic law. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Well, I'm glad that we're no longer under, you know, Old Testament law, New Testament. Romans chapter one, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then he describes what degrading passions are. Women exchanging the natural function for that which is un. Natural. In the same way, the men also abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And my question to you tonight is, do you think God's perspective has changed? Ours has, at least our culture, our world. But as we've talked about so many times in here, culture's always changing. Culture changes with the tide, but Jesus Christ is the same. He never changes. God never changes. But this is what's going on in Sodom 4,000 years ago. Hey, it's nothing new. It was happening then. It was detestable then. It's happening now, and I will say it is detestable now, at least as far as God is concerned. So the question is, where do you want to be aligned? Do you want to align with God or do you want to align with culture? Do you want to be a Christian or an American? There are times where those two cannot coexist, where, where American cultural mindset does cross against being a child of the kingdom. I, I say that as a patriot. I love my country. I believe in the freedoms that we have, especially the freedom of religion. But the truth is, our culture is running headlong into the ways of Sodom. No wonder Lot rushed them inside before nightfall, but then, then Lot does something shocking. They're asking for carnal knowledge of these men. They're saying, bring them out, let them come out to us. And then in verse eight, Lot says, now behold, um, I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Nice guy. What a dad. Daughters are inside. Let, let me send the girls out. So you can satisfy whatever you need to, but, but not, not, my, not my guests. <laughs> wow. Peter calls him, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, righteous lot. How does that work? It says he was righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that, secondly, 
Second time, righteous man, while living among them, felt his third time, righteous soul, tormented day by day after their lawless deeds. And I think, righteous lot? Are you kidding me? All I need to do is read verse 8 and think that is not a righteous action. That's not righteous behavior. How could any righteous dad do something like this? What is Lot thinking? You know what? Maybe he wasn't. That's one possibility. Lot wasn't thinking. He's in a panic. And I'll tell you what, in a panic, we can all do indecent things. In a panic... Things can come out of our mouth that we might not normally let out of our mouth, at least not in the church foyer. <laughs> Under duress, we might do something without thinking, only later to look back and go, oh, what was that? I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? You know. So I don't know. Maybe he wasn't thinking. Maybe, maybe Lot was thinking, and he knew what they wanted and knew that they'd leave his daughters alone because his daughters were not what they wanted. They weren't just looking for sexual pleasure. They were looking for homosexual pleasure. So if he sends the girls out, they'd be okay, right? They, they'd be safe. <laughs> Listen, if you're hoping for some kind of biblical explanation as to Lot's behavior, righteous Lot's behavior here, there is none. There is none. This is one of those stories, my friends. It is what it is. Middle Eastern custom does offer protection for any guest that comes into your tent who is under your roof, but never at the expense of your own children. And yet this is what righteous Lot offers them. So I look at that and I go, how in the world can he be called righteous? I asked the Lord that question yesterday. How can he be called righteous? You know what God said? How can you? I immediately start thinking about my daughters. I wouldn't send them out, Lord. Lord, I'm not as bad as Lot. I wouldn't do what Lot did. How can you be called righteous? You know, anytime you want to get on the judgment bandwagon of someone else, ask yourself the question, wait a minute, I've been called righteous by Jesus? Listen, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then in, down in verse 21 of Romans 3, but, but, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's the deal. That's how I can be righteous. How can Lot be righteous? Well, Rick, how can you be righteous? By the blood of Jesus. How does that work? I believe. Guess what? By the time Peter wrote this, something had, ha had happened later in the story of Lot. Lot believed. How do they call rot, rot? How do they call Lot righteous? Because ultimately he will believe God. And that's what it takes. Faith. You believe. It is not what Lot did that accounted him righteous. It's, it's whom he believed. Verse nine, continuing, he offers his daughters, but they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, 
This one came as an alien, literally as a sojourner, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. Listen, no matter how hard you try to appease the world, the world will never accept those who are right with God. They just won't accept you. If you are a sojourner named by Jesus Christ as one of his own, don't try to please the world. It's not gonna work. The world will turn on you the moment you are not able to do for the world what they desire, what the world wants. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Lot was a sojourner. Yes, he had settled in Sodom, but they recognized him as an outsider, as a sojourner. So are you if you're following Jesus. You are not of this world. You're an outsider. And the moment the world can't get what it wants from you, it will turn on you. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the men reached out their hands. The men, verse 10, now we're talking about the angels reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. That's the first rescue of the night. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. Listen to how depraved they are, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. I don't know about you, but if I'm struck blind, I'm calling for help, I'm going home. I'm gonna call it a day but they're still trying to make their way to the house. And they're, the, the word for blindness here in the Hebrew, it also indicates bewildered. They're blind, they're confused, they can't get their way to the door, but they continue to clamor to get in until they're just worn out. Immorality always makes it hard to find the door. Jesus said, I am the door. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But the depraved, those who God has handed over to their own choices, their own sin behavior, have a really hard time finding the door. They're blind to it because the God of this world blinds the minds of those who are unbelieving such that they, they can't find the door. And I'll say this to you, Christian brothers and sisters, if you're having a hard time finding Jesus, maybe you ought to consider your, your moral state. Because when I'm choosing immoral things, when I'm walking even just slightly on immoral paths, the door becomes difficult for me to find. He's right there. How many times have I had conversations? Les, how many times have you talked to someone who's just coming back to the Lord saying, it just took me so, it was so hard to find him. It took me so long to get him. And you know, I know, he's right here. He's right there. Why can't we see him? Well, if we're making immoral choices, we're confused. Like the men of Sodom. Verse 12. And then the two men, the angels, they said to Lot, whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry, their sa'akah, you remember from Sunday, outcry, sa'akah, righteousness is sedekah, and it's a word play 
the righteousness of God, the outcry of sin. And they use the word again here. The outcry has become so great that the Lord, before the Lord, that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So what's going on here? Sodom finally has come to the end of itself. All the evidence is in. The facts have been weighed. The truth is obvious. There is no further decision to be made. Sodom will end. But do you remember? God made a promise to Abraham. Genesis 18, 32, Abraham said, suppose 10 are found there. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. So before destruction happens, the angels say, who do you have in this town? Get them out. Sons, daughters, sons-in-law, anyone. Anyone you have in this city, you need to get them out now because God is keeping a promise that he made to Abraham, verse 14. Well, Lot went out. Remember, the, the men came in the evening, so now we're into the night. And overnight, apparently, Lot is going out. He, he speaks to his sons-in-laws who were to uh, marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city but he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Oh, come on. Following after their own lusts, Peter says. And saying, where's the promise of his coming? You, you Christians in your tribulation. I read the Left Behind books. Okay, they were fun to read, but it's just fiction. You've got to be kidding, really? Caught up? What a joke, they might say. This is the hard part of the teaching. The world will not be ready when he calls. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And he implies that the answer is no. That worldwide, there will not be Faith. There will be those who believe. There will be faith in the church, but there will not be faith on the earth. And while the church will go up, many, the many, will be caught flat-footed because they just don't believe it. Like Lot's sons-in-laws, it just looks like you're joking. Verse 15, when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Please note this, the word punishment is literally iniquity. You'll be swept away in the sin of the city is what they're saying, the avon. It's the sin of the city that will sweep you away. We, we talk about punishment. Oh, the punishment of the Lord, the punishment is so severe, the punishment is not fear. It is the sin itself that sweeps away. It's the sin itself. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. Our own sin betrays us. The truth reveals what we've done that is iniquitous or transgressing the Lord. You'll be swept away, they say, in the sin of the city. But he, note this verse 16, hesitated. <laughs> I, I, that's amazing to me. City's gonna burn, get out. Let me think about it for a minute. There's this pause in the behavior in the heart of Lot. So what they knew, do, the, the, the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. Why? For the compassion of the Lord was upon him and they brought him out and they put him outside the city. I wonder 
how many Christians would hesitate if Jesus said, come up here whenever you're ready? Where would you be in that? Hey, guys, I'm ready when you are. Okay, hang on. Here, just a minute. I just want to finish this up right here real quick. Just got one last call to make. And check my text messages one more time. Let me just shut down the computer, Lord. Would you hesitate? See, I am so thankful that in every description of the rapture of the church, we have no choice in the matter. We just go. There is no opportunity to hesitate. There's no slow going. Come up here. Hmm. Well, all right. Sure. Get my shoes on. <laughs> going through the clouds, so I probably ought to have a coat. All right. Honey, get the kids. No, not those shoes. The other, I mean... No hesitation. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They ain't got nothing to say about it. They just go up, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Note this, the angels seized Lot. They seized his daughter. They seized the hand of his wife and dragged them out of the city to save them. Guess what? Harpazo, rapture, caught up, literally translates, seize. God's going to seize us. In fact, the word is, is used in a couple of places to speak of being taken violently. Not that God's going to be violent with us, but there will be no pause. We will be taken out by a rush of force. Come up here and we're gone. Baby, we're gone. No time for hesitation. And don't expect pixie dust, folks. You know, like we just start to lift off. Ooh, this is nice. No, no, no. This is the great escape. This is the great escape being pulled out. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7. If he rescued righteous Lot, who is righteous, Why? because he believed. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 17, when they had brought them outside, one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. It's so interesting to me that back again in Genesis 13, 10, that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw Sodom. And now the angels say, don't even look back. Don't look at where you were. Do you think Lot's son-in-laws or sons-in-law called him an escapist? Oh, the Lord's gonna destroy the city. Oh, run, Woo! get out escapist, which is so often what Christians are called who take God at his word, followers of Jesus who truly do believe in the rapture of the church. You will be called, if you haven't already been called, an escapist. When people say, well, Rick, isn't that just escapism? I say, you better believe it is. I'm ready to escape. Yes, I want out. Jesus said, Luke 21, 36, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And so they say in verse 17, escape for your life. And then they tell him, don't even stay anywhere in the valley. 
escape to the mountains. Get up into the mountains. Get as far away as you possibly can. But Lot, verse 18, said, Oh, no, my lords. Up with this guy. First, he hesitates. Now he's like, no, um, can we have a conversation about this for just a moment? Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, that is, your grace, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? that my life might be saved? And he, that is one of the angels, said to him, behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape, he says for the second time. Escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that town was called Zoar. Zoar, which means little one. It used to be called Bella, Genesis 14, 2. After this event, it is renamed, it is forever called Zoar. And by the way, when I say it's forever called Zoar, that's because it is still called Zohar today. One of the fascinating things about walking around in Israel is you start to realize the street signs that look very modern and very much like American street signs still say things like <laughs> Bet Shon, you know, Zohar. Biblical names, Jericho. When you see Jericho on a street sign, you go, dude, they still call it that. And they do. The names are the same, have been for thousands of years. Zohar is still there. It is the only city of the plain that survived. One out of five. The other four are destroyed. We always say Sodom and Gomorrah. There were four that were destroyed of the cities of the plain. Deuteronomy 29, 23, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. But note, the angel says, in essence, flee to the Rockies, and he says, let me live in Littleton. It's kind of a Colorado joke there. Flee to the mountains. No, let me stay here in Smallsville. You know, it strikes me, God often tells us to go to the mountains and we decide to live in Podunk Place. God has big things available for us, but we want to go to the small town. We want to go to the little spot. We want to live in Smallsville. You know what? The size of my faith will determine the size of my dwelling here on earth. The size of my faith will determine the size of my dwelling here on earth. And I'm not talking about your home or your apartment. The size of my faith will determine what my life looks like. It will determine the fullness of my life or the smallness of my life. Small faith, small life. Big faith, big life. That's really how it works. I'm not talking about prosperity gospel here, not in the least. But it's amazing that we so often are offered an opportunity to run to the mountain and we choose the tiny town. God says, have faith. You have faith the size of a mustard seed? You will say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, Jesus says. And we go, well, that sounds great, but I'm fine. I'm, fine. I'm good here. I'll just stay in my little house, my tiny house. 
That's the big thing, especially among millennials today. I'm like, you can have it. My house isn't big enough, I'm just saying. <laughs> How often does God call us to great things, the mountains, but we settle for tiny things? He says to Israel, and I think by extension to you and me, Isaiah 54, verse two, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. And you know what this has me thinking about? Just right now, in this moment, I gotta go off note and tell you something. Our children's ministry is packed. We don't have room for the kids. So as of Sunday, we're just gonna cancel children. We're not gonna have children at the bridge anymore. <laughs> we're gonna suffer the little children to go elsewhere. How ridiculous. Think about this though. Why, why are we out of room? Well, because we've got one wing. You realize that in this building, and I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get physical here in, in thinking big just for a minute, but in this building, we have what we used to call phase one and phase two. There's a phase three. Plans are drawn up, it's sitting there. Why aren't we moving on phase three? Well, because we haven't trusted the Lord enough yet. Soon as we trust him enough, phase three will happen. I am not into building buildings, honestly. I really don't care. I was happy in the barn. Oh, I was happy in the barn. <laughs> Where the over, only overhead we had was, you know, like two inches thick. I mean, it was, it was easy, it was cool, it was... What a great vibe, you know. I don't care about having a big building. That's not the point. But the point is there's need. There's more we can do. There's more I think God wants to do. The question is, will we enlarge the place of our tent? Will we believe him for it? That is always the question. How much are you willing to believe him for? Where's Michael ate a lot? Where are you, Michael? Wake him up. So... <laughs> I gotta tell you guys, you'll, you'll be hearing more about this. Michael's got big vision for a school for kids in Ghana. He's already been given the land. I mean, I don't know how much of you, we, we gotta tell this whole story, Michael, and not tonight, because this is my time. <laughs> but but this, this is exactly what, and Michael, so this is for you tonight. Dream big, think big. When you are willing to run to the mountain, God can do massive things. If you want to stay in your tiny house, you can live there. He'll still love you. He'll still call you up when it's time to go. And you'll look back and go, man, could have had so much more. Could have seen so much more of God at work. And, and, and Michael, he's going to do this. I really believe this. There is something big on the horizon through Michael and some others who are now starting to catch that vision. And what's great about it is if you, if you ask Michael, okay, so what's your plan? He'll go, I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing. That's the best place for God to work in your life. You don't have to know. Just believe. Just trust him. And let's, as a fellowship here, let's be thinking. Is there more we could do faith-wise? Is there a way we could trust God more so that he can expand the place of our dwelling? So that Cam and Joe are not trying to get kids out of each room with a crowbar on Sunday because there's so many of them in there? Think big. Brothers and sisters, enlarge the place of our tent. By the way, do you know the prophecy of, of Isaiah 54? Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not. Do you know what prophecy 
immediately follows Isaiah, or that prophecy immediately follows? Isaiah 53. <laughs> Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant. Jesus suffered and died so that his people could enlarge the place of their tent. So we could stretch out, so we could look at what he did. Would anyone believe that God would put on flesh, be hung up on a cross, die, and three days later rise from the dead to kick open eternity for anyone who just believes in him? That's huge. And he did it. Isaiah 53 prophesies, and Isaiah 54 says, oh, think big. Dream big. You gotta get beyond ourselves here. The cross invites great things, mountains, not small living. Why won't Lot run to the mountains? Okay, back to the story. Because he doesn't trust God to provide for him in the mountains. Oh, I can't live in the mountains, I'm a city boy. <laughs> At best, he was a sojourner, a plain dweller, up in the mountains, anything could happen in the mountains. If God tells you to run to the mountains, he's gonna meet you there. If he met you in Sodom, he's gonna meet you in the mountains. When he calls you to something greater or better, he'll, he'll be there, he'll make it happen. But Lot doesn't trust that. And verse 23 tells us then that the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The ancient rabbis have a real hard time with this. Note this again, verse 24. The Lord, that's Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord, that's Yahweh, out of heaven. Now, if, if you're looking at this from, from a, a Hebrew perspective, this is very interesting because what it seems to indicate is that the Lord on earth called for fire and brimstone to be sent from the Lord in heaven. Two lords, one in heaven, one on earth. Some rabbis say, well, the first Yahweh, the one on earth, that Yahweh is actually the angel Gabriel. Where do you get that? Oy vey. There's no answer. And some say, so that's Gabriel and it's God, but it says Yahweh and Yahweh. And it's amazing to me how far some people will go just to avoid Jesus on earth. By the way, verse 24 is also the very first mention of fire in the Bible. Fire in conjunction with judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And by the way, I said this before, if you remember the name Sodom, Sodom means burning. I don't know who the idiot was who named it in the first place. It wasn't always like that. Remember, well-watered, beautiful valley, the Jordan Valley. Oh, that's the place to raise our flocks and herds, thought lost lot. That's the place to live. Well, verse 26 tells us, but his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar 
of salt. I always thought that was so bizarre. I remember as a kid looking that verse up just because I wanted to read it again. How weird. She became a pillar of salt, man. I, I just, it's one of the most bizarre pictures in scripture. And yet, how many of you have seen uh, pictures, and there have been some out actually recently, of what the Mount Vesuvius, uh, Vesuvius eruption did to Pompeii? Have you seen some of those? Where they, they've dug up and they found out bodies literally like fleeing frozen because it came so fast that that volcanic flow just went whoosh and covered them. And in an instant, whatever they were doing, wherever they were, people running in the streets, it's just horrific. Even to the point where a recent news article said they've, re, they've discovered that it was so hot that literally it turned one of the victim's brains to glass. They discovered glass where brains should have been. That's what we're talking about. She looked back, and immediately she was consumed. And Jesus said, and I remind you, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will, note how he says this, preserve it. Salt's a preservative, my friends. <laughs> so you can either preserve your life or you can be salt. Your choice. <laughs> Remember Lot's wife, he says. Think about this. The one problem she had was she could not let go. She had to look back. She wanted the life that she had. And Jesus says, don't look back. Think about her. Don't try to keep your life. Lose your life. Why? Because when I lose my life, when I die to self, I start to become spiritual. Life starts to get real. Pillar of salt. By the way, another kind of pillar is promised in the scriptures for those who overcome. Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And, and if you were in the Revelation study, you know that doesn't mean you're going to be like standing in the temple. Can I get a break? You'll be a pillar, like, like a pillar in the community. Lot wanted to be a pillar in his community. That's why he was sitting at the city gate. I want to be a known dude. I want to be a pillar. No, you don't. Not here. You want to be a pillar there. In the kingdom, belonging to God. How much better to be a pillar in the kingdom than a pillar of salt? Verse 27. Now Abraham arose early in the morning. He went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Pause for a moment and think about how Abraham felt. What was that like? How would it have been if Abraham went up to that place the next morning not having had full disclosure from the Lord, his friend, about what was about to happen? What if he just went up there? What's this? What's going on? But God said, Shall we hide this from Abraham? Gotta let him know. Why? He's my friend. He's my beloved. He's my Ahav. 
And so because of the love of God for Abraham, they had the conversation we talked about on Sunday, went through the whole thing. Abraham interceded for Lot, pled for Lot and his family living there in Sodom. So now it's the next morning and an apprehensive Abraham is up. He's up early and he's going out to survey Sodom. Remember what the guarantee was? If I find 10 righteous people in the city, I will not destroy it. And Abraham is looking down on destruction. So all he can know is there were not 10 righteous people. You know what that means? My family was not righteous. Listen, I know it's hard. We all have family who don't believe. We all have family who at this moment are not righteous because they don't believe. So did Abraham. His entire extended family in Sodom, with the exception of a man and his two daughters. The rest were wiped out, and he looks down on this, and all he can do is say, there weren't 10 righteous people on the plain. And at the same time, Abraham would yet to know, was yet to know what had happened to Lot. In fact, after the story, we don't hear about Lot ever again. He survived. He went on, had children, we'll see. But we, we don't hear any more about him. Abraham had to see all this. And then in verse 29, thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham, kept him in mind, was thinking of Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived, which tells us the reason God saved Lot was Abraham interceded for him, and God remembered. Not to say that God forgets, but the Hebrew word remembers is he kept in remembrance. He kept in the forefront of his mind. I made a promise to Abraham, I'm gonna keep it. 10 righteous people were not found. The city was destroyed, but I'm getting lot out because, because of Abraham, because Abraham interceded. Do not ever, ever underestimate the power and the value of your prayers for non-believing family. God will get them out if there's any way possible to do it because with God, all things are possible. Now again, in verse 10 of chapter 13, Lot had seen the valley well watered everywhere, a beautiful valley. You know what Arabs call it today? They call it the Sea of Lot. Romans eventually came along and renamed it the Dead Sea. If you've been to Israel, if you go to Israel, you go down to the Dead Sea, you know what the valley looks like now. And it is an absolute desolate waste. The salt sea is there. At the south end of the Dead Sea, there's a rock salt mountain that is five miles long, several hundred feet high. And in Arabic, they call it Jebel Usdum, which means Mount Sodom. The recognition right there in the land is not that this was a fairy tale or a fable, but this took place. It happened right there. And today, it's hot, it's dry, it's desolate. Until recently. So cool. In fact, just since we started going to Israel, Cheryl and I went the first time in 2005. So since 2005, something's been happening down around the Dead Sea. Sinkholes have been appearing. They're dropping these big, huge sinkholes all around the sea. Well, that's, that's no big thing. I mean, I, you'd expect that. Yeah, but they're filling up with fresh groundwater. And in these fresh groundwater sinkholes, 
suddenly, they don't know how. Scientists in Israel haven't figured this out. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of little fish swimming in water on the banks of the Dead Sea in this desolate place. And there's algae, and there are microorganisms, and all the scientists are saying, oy vey. My friends, it is a precursor to prophecy, and I'm just going to read it to you real quickly. Ezekiel 47, verse 10, speaking of that region, it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Eneglaim, and there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. We still want, you know, some salt in the kingdom. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary, that is from the temple, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And it's such a stunning passage. I wish we could do the whole thing right now. But Ezekiel 47 describes a tiny little stream that starts at the threshold of the temple. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, pouring down out of the temple. And then it divides and half goes toward the Mediterranean, the Med Sea, and the other half goes to the Dead Sea and refreshes the whole area. This river is so stunning. Bible says that the spreading of nets will go all the way from Engedi to Eneglaim, which if you map that, it's 22 miles. This is water flowing 22, and I don't know if it's 22 miles wide solid or 22 miles of, of rushing streams and rivers, all of the same river, all rushing down to the Dead Sea, but it will take the deadness of that sea and it will turn it into a living, beautiful place, a well-watered place a beautiful place. And I think again that he whose delight is in the law of the Lord, in his law he meditates day and night, he will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. I think God's giving us some hints that the day is close, that the river's gonna flow right out of the sanctuary and it's going to redeem the land and we're starting to see just little hints. There's already fish there. More to come. Well, verse 30, Lot went up from Zoar. He stayed in the mountains. His two daughters went with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. And he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. So Lot changes his mind. Let me stay in Zoar, not in the mountains. I can't live in the mountains. I gotta stay in Zoar. So he goes to Zoar, and now it's not safe. Well, Zoar was one of the 10 cities in the plain. So while the other four are going up in smoke, can you imagine? So perhaps geographically, Lot's like, oh, we, we better go to the mountains. Let's get out. And off they go. Or, or perhaps, perhaps he realized they couldn't stay there because Zoar morally was bankrupt just like the other four cities. And Lot's looking around going, it is no better here we better get out now because the fate's gonna be the same here. I don't know, but hey, consider the course of Lot's life. He went from cushy nomad. I mean, he had flocks and herds. He was wealthy. The Bible says incredibly wealthy. A cushy nomad, and then he became a city slicker, and now he's a caveman. <laughs> this is the trajectory of someone clinging to this life. God saved him. He's righteous lot because when God said get out, 
he believed enough to allow himself to be dragged out of the city. <laughs> if you're ever not sure about your faith, just look at Lot. You just need enough. Okay, okay, I'll go. And he's considered righteous. I love that. But here he is in the cave. You gotta wonder what Lot's thinking now. This is it. This is the, the entirety of my life has landed me here. Isaiah chapter two, verse 19 says, men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. Revelation chapter six describes that happening. The kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? How many people flee or will flee to caves because they're terrified of what God's about to do? So Lot ends up in a cave. I would say he ends up in a cave between a rock and a hard place which I think would be good names for his two daughters. Verse 31, then the firstborn, we'll call her Rock, said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. Literally in the Hebrew, let us make our father drunk. And let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. The story just keeps getting better. So they made their father drink wine, they made their father drunk that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father, let us make him drunk tonight also, then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose, and both of the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. How easy was it to get Lot drunk? Strikes me that living in Sodom, perhaps he already had the behavior down. Maybe it was Lot's way of dealing with the ugliness of Sodom. It was just so bad outside at night, he had to just get in, lock the doors, and drink himself to sleep. But this was a man who's used to drinking. And now because of that, he fathers two sons by his daughters. It's stunning to me. Lot got his daughters out of Sodom, but he couldn't get Sodom out of his daughters. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami, and he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Ammon, 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 Jordan. Northern Jordan is filled with those who still trace their lineage to the Ammonites. The middle of Jordan is inhabited by those who still trace their lineage to the Moabites, and southern Jordan is inhabited by those who still trace their lineage to the Edomites. Seriously, talk to a Jordanian today. It's fascinating. Ah, yeah, they'll say, we're called Jordan because, you know, the British, and after the World War, you know, they, they renamed all these places, so they just called, we've got Transjordan, and they shortened it to Jordan. So they call us Jordanians, but really, I'm a Moabite. 
said the tour guide on the bus. I'm a Moabite. I'm like, dude, really? I don't think I'd claim that. <laughs> Moab by grandpa and mom, and then Ammon, and it's the same today, and so ends a very tragic story, but it's one that began, and we'll finish here, it began with a meal, a meal of unleavened bread. You know what unleavened bread is also called among the Hebrews, especially back at the time of the Passover? Travel bread. Travel bread, because it, you know, there's not much that can go wrong once you've unleavened it. So you just pack it in the pack and it's good to go. You can eat it as long as you need to. Every Sunday and Wednesday. <laughs> unleavened bread, travel bread. And the final thought here is simply, brothers and sisters, before we go up, get the leaven out. Before we go up, get the leaven out. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Paul says, your boasting is not good. Let me give you context. Stay, if, you, if you zoned on me at all, listen to this. Paul says, your boasting is not good. He's talking to Corinth. What are they boasting about? They're boasting about the fact that they are tolerating a man who has his father's wife. They're tolerating a sexual sin, not a pretty one. They're tolerating something detestable in the church. They're saying, ah, you know, yeah, but grace, right? It's cool. Yeah, he shouldn't have done that, but hey, he's our brother. Aren't we wonderful? Aren't we a tolerant group of Christians because we're embracing this sexual sin? We won't even call it that because that's, that's mean-spirited. And they're proud of this. There are churches today that are proud of this. And Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How can we be sincere? How can we be true? How can we be genuine and honest before God? We clean the leaven out. We just say, you know what? We're gonna choose. We will be a people who choose to live God's way, not man's way. We will live by the biblical standard, not by the cultural standard. We're gonna follow Christ. Get the leaven out. Because you know what? Before you know it, we're gonna be called out. Father, I pray that we're ready. I pray in the moment that you seize us and pull us out of here instantaneously. Lord, that we're already good to go. That there would be no reason for hesitation, no reason for pause. Lord, I pray for conviction tonight. I, I truly do that you will move about in our hearts, every one of us. Father, there's not a one of us here that is righteous on our own. Any righteousness in this place is because we believe in you. The Lord Jesus, every one of us have some leaven in the corner, some leaven in the cupboard, some lever, leaven somewhere in the house. And I pray you would convict us. Father, what is the leaven in my life? Would you show me? What is the leaven that I'm tolerating? Would you reveal that to me? 
and for each of us to honestly assess how much are we trying to live like and look like and be like this leavened world. Oh, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, clean out the leaven from among us, not that we would ever, Father, become arrogant or prideful, just the opposite. Clean out the leaven that in humility, in sincerity, in truth, we might worship you and be ready when you say, come up here. In Jesus' name, amen. You were like, oh, I'm already there, I can't get out. No, no, get out, clean out the leaven. You call on the spirit of the living God to clean out the leaven and you can have life redeemed. If he can redeem a Moabitess named Ruth, and along with her, we have Tamar, Bathsheba, and Rahab in the line of Jesus. He can, he can redeem anybody. And he wants, he wants to redeem you and me tonight. So Father, we just say, clean out the leaven. Say, Lord, we need you to work. We need you to seize us, grab hold of us, and drag us out of the Sodom of our lives and clean out anything that has, that has built a barrier, as it were, Father, between us and you. Redeem us to yourself and bring us further into that which is spiritual and true and right and good. And I pray that we will go forth with great joy because, Lord, you have called us righteous in spite of ourselves, and we are among the redeemed. So we praise your name. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.